very good questions. And I think uh, those of you who know Pastor Dan this morning, so thank you. Thanks, Amy. So, folks, throughout the uh, morning, um, Hannes is going to pop on the screen my phone number, which my phone is in front of me. I won't be looking at it for any other messages but mm-hmm. your questions. Um, and so if, you, if you've got a question, don't hesitate to text it through. We are going to keep this morning at a limited time. Otherwise, we could be here till tomorrow, maybe next week, not sure mm-hmm. when. Because the questions are fantastic, but uh, and often, often they'll go into a deeper answer. So if you'd like to set text through your question, you're more than welcome to. I do have a, a good um, mixture of questions. But before we do that, shall we, shall we just open up in prayer? Yeah. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we are just so thankful to be able to come and learn more, to uh, ask those questions of, of you and, and uh, of our uh, pastor at our church. We thank you for the opportunity to just be here. And we just ask for your hand over Daniel as he handles some of these very hard-hitting questions where we're faced in our society and our culture, these forks in the road. Lord God, have your hand over him. Guide him. And as always we know, his words are truth of yours. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Do you want me just to kick off? By the way, Daniel's got a very croaky throat, so he's going to take it down an octave so it doesn't yeah. sound like he's... Yeah, Talk to you like this, if that's okay, because <laughs> if I go up here, it's a bit bit uncertain, so um, hopefully it'll still be all right to listen to. Um, I do want to say just at the at the top, uh, I don't promise to be the fount of all wisdom on all, all matters, mm. but I have had the privilege of um, you know, studying God's Word at Bible College and things, and so I've been forced to think about some things that other people might not have, and so I, this is hopefully just a way to share those things with you. Uh, if I do have to say I don't know on something, then I'll have to say I don't know, but uh, hopefully I'll be able to give an answer that will help with uh, all of the things that you've raised. And yeah, as Amy said, if if we can't get to them all today, then uh, we should hopefully be able to do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you, Daniel. All right. Question number one. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Mm. I just break it out. Chuck it out there. Let's start. That's a nice curly one right from the top. Um, Yes, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, to say that we're made in the image of God when each of us looks a little bit different Mm -hmm. and some of us more different than others. But, um, you know, does God have my eyes? Does God have my hair? Is that what it means to be made in the image of God, that he, he literally looks like us, that he even necessarily has hands and feet and, and all of those sort of aspects. My understanding is when the Bible talks about us being made in the image of God, it's talking more about our personality, our, um, you know, our, our self-consciousness, our, uh, you know, intelligent, our, our soul, our spirit, the way that we're made is that we're made in the image of God, that we are made rational like God is and able to think and understand the things of the universe, that, that we're made with a spirit in order to interact with God, who the Bible tells us is spirit, and that we're made um, to be relational just as God is and has for all eternity been relational, that relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So when it says about us being made in the image of God, I think it's less that uh, Adam and Eve, who were 
the only ones, well, and Jesus as well, the ones who are truly the image of God. Um, all of us have that image of God still in us, but we also have the corruption of sin and uh, because we've turned against God, that means we're not perfectly the image of God. One, one, Im- uh, one imagery I've heard used on that is like the funhouse mirror. We reflect God like the funhouse mirror. There, there's still a bit of the image of God there, but there's a bit of distortion and things as well. Um, yeah, it's not so much that we look like God in the physical things, but that we are like God in who we are. Um, now in part and imperfectly, but one day perfectly. Mm. I hope that helps. Yes, it does. It really does. Couldn't God be male and female? Do we have to think of him as a male only? Another very good question. Mm -hmm. Um, In truth, I don't think the Bible gives us the impression that God is, strictly speaking, male or female or any of those things. There There are parts of the Bible that gives God male characteristics uh, as the father. Um, There are parts of the Bible that speak of God with female characteristics, as in, um, you know, taking his chicks under his wings and things like that, images of the mother and and maternal images or or of nursing Israel at his breast and things like that. So God, the Father at least is not, strictly speaking, male in the same way that, you know, biologically we're male or female. Um, Jesus, of course, is a very different case in which he was, he did become human and he became a male human. Um, So it certainly wouldn't be uh, adequate to refer to Jesus as a she. Now, when it comes to, excuse me, when it comes to how we address God, um... You know, I think it's wise to keep in mind that God is not a man as we know men, but I think it's also wise to consider that he has fairly universally uh, been uh, chosen to be addressed as he, as him, as father rather than mother. So um, even though there are aspects, you know, male and female are made in the image of God, and so that means that God has the characteristics of of women and you know those maternal and and, and um, you know feminine characteristics. I would probably avoid referring to God as the the holy mother or the heavenly mother or as she, uh, just because of that's been God's choice throughout throughout the Word to uh, be known to us by those male characteristics. So. Um, or that, yeah, those male titles. Um, I hope that answers the question mm. well enough. And yeah, always happy to discuss these things further as well uh, with anybody who wants to uh, come back at me on those later. This this next question will lead beautifully into that. We are taught to relate to God through male and female analogies, such as bride of Christ and sons of God. So surely that means we can relate to God that is both male and female, which is just what I think you've answered. Yeah, um, just trying to think if there's anything I'd want to add on top of that. And that is interesting too, isn't it, that 
the women in the church have to get used to being the sons of God and the men in the church have to get used to the idea of being the bride of Christ. Um, so there are some, some aspects of that that encourage us to think about how we think about uh, yeah, gender and, and like particularly when it comes to our relationship with God. Mm. Uh, and I think... Yeah, there's something something special in the fact that God is, you know, both got God has both got the characteristics of the best father you've known and the best mother that you've ever known, uh, which is a wonderful picture. Mm. Yes, it is. Why are there so many polygamous relationships in the Bible? That's a, that's a very interesting one. Yes, in the in the Old Testament in particular, um, you know, we read about you. Know, Jacob and his 12 sons through uh, four different women and, and some other things uh, along similar lines. And interestingly, even without a decree from heaven saying polygamy is bad, by the time of Jesus that practice had, had almost died out. Uh, in, it, they'd come to the understanding that marriage should between, be between one man and one woman except in the rare case where there was a thing under the law where um, if your brother died and hadn't left any heirs, you would marry his wife and then the first heir she had would be uh, considered to be your brother's child and, and carry on the family name. But apart from that rare situation, yeah, people had come to the understanding that that wasn't the way God wanted us to live, which was interesting. And I think... Um, what must have brought them back to that is that picture in Genesis of the man being united to his wife and, and it's just one in that picture. And it's not until we get a few generations down that there's uh, a man who decides to take multiple wives for himself. Now, I don't know that the Bible ever said that it was sin uh, for a man in, those, in that era to have had multiple wives um, I read a very interesting book that spoke about the idea of a, a understanding a retrieval ethic in the Bible, and that's the idea of something that God permitted for a time that wasn't intrinsically sin, but was less than his best plan for us. And under that, it had, they, they talked about matters like polygamy and like slavery and said like, Neither of these would have a place in God's perfect creation, uh, you know, before the fall. But now in the sinful and broken world, God may have allowed these for a time to allow, you know, big families, to allow the, um, you know, the filling of the earth in a time where, you know, not every woman would be able to have children and where, you, which is a consequence of... Um, sin coming into the world and where, where children would die, which is a consequence of sin coming into the world and where adults would die. And so God may have allowed that for a time uh, without it being sin necessarily, but with it still being far less than what is best for us and, and what is part of God's ideal creation. And would it be correct in saying that the culture back then, right back then when, when it was part of the the rhythm of life was that was just culture but also to keep that family line going because child infant death was rife and and that that cycle of life was very different to what we see now 
Yeah, and I think for, for some of those reasons, and of course some things that were culturally, culturally normal back then, God said, no, you're not doing that. Mm -hmm. But he seems to have permitted that for a time because of those sort of reasons. And, and um, yeah, I, I don't think it's something that we should be looking to bring back today. So, um. Um, Yeah, you sing it, Les. Yes, we are. Mm. <laughs> We'll choose to take that as, as a positive statement there, Les. <laughs> Good on you. Now, we're going to change the tone a little bit here. Mm -hmm. But the question has been raised, why are women treated so badly in the Bible? That is a very a difficult question, yeah. a very fair question. Um, I think one simple part of the answer is that women have been treated very badly in history and a lot of the Bible is history. And so it records lots of bad things that happened without you know, saying that these things are good but simply saying that these things happened. Uh, you know, in a situation where, generally speaking, you know, men are stronger than women, uh, when sin entered the world, so entered you know, a rela you know, relationship where the strong rule the weak and, the, you know, the strong f force their will on the weak and oppress the weak and that takes place over many different types of relationships we see in the Bible and, yeah, is not necessarily to be taken as God's endorsement of those things happening. Now, the Bible does also, I think, do its part to push back on the belittling of women and the you know the sidelining of women. We see um, people like Deborah in the book of Judges, who uh, was a judge and was probably the best of the judges uh, in a time where the people who led Israel were not always the most uh, faithful in their in their duties. And yeah, she she. Her leadership of Israel, not just uh, you know dealing with civic matters, but also leading them in battle, uh, would have you know being that being part of God's word forces people to reevaluate if they had a very low view of women that God had chosen Deborah for that task. Um, we could say similar things, of course, about Esther. Uh, and although Ruth's strength was of a different kind, um, you know, not in battle or uh, you know, not in the way that Esther saved her people. Uh, Ruth did still demonstrate a lot of faith in God and, and love for God and was then held up as an exemplar for men and women uh, yeah, in the word. And then we reach the time of Jesus and we see the tremendous uh, affection and, and worth that he, and dignity that he afforded to all of the women that he came across. And... We see the, the early church, and I know in some circles it's contentious that the church today talks about there being some roles in the church that are for men and some uh, that, are, that are open to men and women. But what we can sometimes miss in that discussion is how extraordinary it was the amount of roles that were open to women in you know, a first century context where, where women weren't allowed to be... Uh, yeah, they were kept separate from the men in the synagogue and you needed 10 men 
to make a synagogue and women didn't count towards that number at all. And so I think understanding that the, the fundamental equality of men and women in the eyes of God, even if we do believe that there are differences in, uh, in men and women, um, and that's something that has really come from the Bible uh, and from the way that, especially the way that Jesus treated women and led his disciples to do the same. So, yeah, I hope that answers. It is fair to say women often did get a bad lot in Bible times and there are you know, certainly certain parts of that we wouldn't want to revisit. But yeah. I also think, as I said, that Jesus is the answer to that as well. So... And, and very much, again, culture Yeah, was the way back then. How do we relate to Jews when there is so much anti-Semitism? Mm. Um, preferably, yeah, without anti-Semitism <laughs> is a good start. Um, it can be helpful for us to remember that Jesus, Jesus was a Jew, that the Twelve were all Jews, that Paul was a Jew, um, you know, there, there's been times throughout history where, where people have made a lot of the Jews being the ones who killed Christ. But he was also a Jew and so were all of his followers and so was the, the earliest part of the early church. Um, and likewise, we Gentiles can't wash our hands of the death of Jesus either. It was the Romans and the Jews together that put him to death. So... Certainly, I <clears throat> excuse me. I think the Bible is quite clear. Salvation is through Christ. That anybody who rejects the Son rejects the Father also. So, someone is not saved by being a Jew, but that doesn't make them our enemies by any means. Um, it makes them much like anybody else that uh, yeah, any of our other neighbours. Somebody to love, somebody to show God's goodness to, and somebody to. When you know, if if we're allowed to, and the time is right, to share God's word with, um, I read a very very interesting book once written from a Jewish person who had become Christian, uh, and they wrote about how one of the huge things about um, you know, in their journey to faith was learning that Christians didn't actually hate them and weren't their enemies because there has been bad blood throughout the generations, and so I think. There's a huge, if we know Jewish people, there's, there's a huge witness in just, in them knowing that we're Christian and that we love them. How, what happens to babies when they die and have never heard of God or had a chance to believe? That is a tough one. And that's, statistically speaking, that's not, an academic question for at least one, if not a couple people in this church. So I want us to always keep those sort of things in mind. Mm. I always want to be careful about not giving too certain an answer mm. where scripture is not necessarily explicit on something. There have been a range of views throughout the history of the church, ranging from you know, all of the unborn and, and up to an age of understanding, whatever that might be, are all saved. And others saying, you know, because of the curse of sin, because we're all born in sin, 
Uh, only those who believe are saved, and so to say otherwise is to give false hope. I think on that, there might be a good question to ask, and that is, is it possible for a newborn or even an unborn child to respond in faith to God to a level you know, related to their understanding. Mm. Uh, yeah, they're probably not going to be able to fully spell out substitutionary atonement. <laughs> but uh, one thing that people uh, you know, have commented on is when we read... <coughs> Excuse me. When we read about when Mary went to visit her friend Elizabeth and she was at this point pregnant with Jesus and the unborn child, John the Baptist, was leaping in her womb. There was the, the description given that. Um, yeah, and, and the Bible draws our attention to this, I think, to show one, the importance of Jesus, and two, the importance of John the Baptist, who would be the one who would point the way to Jesus. So that's its primary goal in what it's mainly trying to communicate. But it does raise the question about, here's John the Baptist, just as much born under the stain of sin and death as anybody else, responding in faith in a way uh, when... when Jesus comes to him. So I think that would raise that would cause me to think about whether it is the, the Bible might give us some evidence for it, an infant or an unborn child being able to respond in faith to God, at least at the level of their very limited understanding. Mm. Um, but as I said, I really don't want to be giving too um, exact or like two confident answers to things on which I think the Bible's not necessarily explicit on what it's teaching. To a non-believer of God, how would you explain your faith in God and why you're a Christian? What are some good opening sentences for starting a conversation about God? Well, hang on, wait, let me first say, how do you take... <laughs> How do you take the crazy out of being a Christian? I've, um, <clears throat> I've got packed in my bag to take away a book called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. <laughs> um, so maybe when I've read that book, I'll give you a, a fuller answer. Um, we'll go back to the first question. How, yeah. would, you, how would you explain your... I think one of the key things... Uh, in talking about matters of faith and why you believe is to get the conversation to Jesus as quickly as you can. Um, don't spend all day arguing like New Earth, cre or like six-day creationism or, um, you know, obscure parts of the Bible or anything like that. I would try to get the conversation to Jesus if, if, if we were having a conversation about why I believe. The heart of that is because of Jesus, of who he is and what he's done, and, and to try and you know, encourage them to, to think about actually you know, who was Jesus and, and did what he said have any relevance to me. I think the fact that Jesus is so unlike any other, you know, 
any other form of human teaching, the, the things that he taught, and, and his teaching on grace and forgiveness and the golden rule, and gives us a, a good place to sort of talk about things that hopefully our friends would also agree with, uh, and talk about how Jesus really started that. The idea of those who are in charge being those who serve others. Jesus started that. The idea of humility being a good thing and not a bad thing that you, know, you only did with you were forced to. Jesus started that and, and helped to encourage them to, to want to check out what Jesus said for themselves. Um, as for lead-in lines, uh, I, I'm not the most naturally gifted evangelist. I'm not sure if I'm the best person to talk about that with. But I find one thing that can be helpful is just, you know, if, if somebody asks you about what you did on your weekend, mention that you went to church or um, just just find natural ways to talk about your Bible study group and the, and they might, you, you might see the wall go up and then, you know, all right, I'll just, I'll hold on to that one for now. <laughs> but it may also bring the opportunity to, to have more of a conversation around those things. So, this is a part of your life and a part of who you are. And if, if there are ways that you can bring that across naturally in, in the conversation that you're having, um, that's often better than having like a, a, a evangelism pickup line that you like to lead in with. Um, mm. I think also just by leading in your life is a great opening line, isn't it? Mm. I've heard of a story, uh, for those of you who know, Ben, uh, Geordie and Ben Partridge, a comment was made to their mother um, on a football day and uh, a gentleman who had known the boys for a long time and seen them growing up through the football ranks made a comment and said, there's always been something about your boys on the field and off the field and they've just shone, not as in outwardly or uh, you know, they're the, the loudest person in the room, they've just shone. And he said, I figured out what it was the other day, now I'm a Christian, but it's because they're Christians. How much of that is a statement and that's mm. your, your opening line? Yeah, thank you. Um, we're going to. I'm just going to tap on something that you just uh, spoke about. We have a question sure. here. How do we answer the difference in creation of the world from the biblical view, the yeah. seven days of creation, uh, into the secular science world? And, and remembering there are many scientists out there who have their Christian heart and they have their Christian view and their perspective and learning. So, how do we how do we tackle that? That's a very good question as well. You see, it's getting hotter all the time. <laughs> hmm. Yes, yes, he is, Maggie. I think that one of the things I find the hardest answering this question well is that I have Christians who I love and respect and who I you know, certainly believe are Christians that would answer this question differently to what I would. Mm. Um, so I... You know, like a lot of the, the leadership of this church, take the six-day creation view that that when the Bible says the world was made in six days, that you know, and made exactly as God wanted it, that's what happened. Um, there are other Christians, and like I say, I I truly believe this is not a salvation issue. They understand that the um, the first chapter of Genesis is speaking poetically, and it is written poetically, but whether that means they weren't literally six days is, is a whole other topic. And so they believe 
that God created the world exactly as he wanted it, but it might have been you know, over a longer period of time than just the six days. And that would uh, answer the question of why you know, sometimes the, the, the dating and things of, of things is out of whack with what we'd expect if the earth was 6,000 years old. Now, somebody brought up Creation Magazine. That's the, that's the other side of the coin. That's the other answer is that if the dates that we have for the world say very different things about the length of the world than, uh, you know, what we understand the Bible to be saying, Perhaps it's our method of gathering those dates that is at fault. Um, and they've, yeah, that magazine has written quite a lot of articles and things about exactly those sort of questions, about whether, whether there are flaws in the way that we date, uh, you know, carbon-14 dating and, and all of this sort of stuff, and whether uh, some assumptions about the age of the world have led into the way that they uh, interpret their data. Uh, I'm not a uh, you know, biologist or a physicist or any of those things. I don't know if I'm a, that I'm an expert on any of these things, but I think there are plenty of very intelligent scientists-type people that, um, that are not uncomfortable with the question of you know, with six-day creation and, and how our dating, you know, that we that they're currently using might not lead to that, you know, might not match what the Bible says on that. Um, terrific book, I think, to look up on that. Uh, John Lennox uh, has written a book about six days that divide the world uh, about the different Christian perspectives on that creation and whether it was six days or not. And that might be a really good way for you to dive into the, um, yeah, the two different views, which, like I said, I do truly believe that people can be true Christians mm. while, you know, not holding the, the creationist view. Because mm. in, our, in our society, you know, we, we talk of the first people on this land mm. and the dating back with that and uh, the fossils that we... We dig up another dinosaur. They are just scattered everywhere. Yeah, you know. And so, how are we reconciling that? How are we able to articulate? Well, y- yeah, but it's not in the Bible. Yeah. I think, as I sort of said before, I'd probably be reasonably wary of of having too long a conversation with non-Christians about Genesis and that anyway. Um, it's fine to have those conversations, but at some point I'd want that conversation to be about Jesus as well. People aren't going to believe in the Bible because you've convinced them with 20, you know, 30 pages of documents that the earth is 6,000 years old. They're going to believe in Jesus because you've shown them Jesus and they want to know more. So... Um, yeah, I think if you want to have those conversations, um, just remember that grace is important, that listening and not just wanting to get your side of the, the argument across is hugely important. Um, yeah, don't, don't be afraid to... You know, one, one of the things people can worry about if they do take the creationist view is that we'll look a bit silly. Um, 
sometimes you're going to look a bit silly, but you just make your case as well as you can. Um, I know you talk about the fossils. I know the, the thing creation often talks about is that these things can either be created over a long period of time or a very short period of massive upheaval, mm. like, for example, the flood. So if we do believe in a literal flood, then that gives us a, a place to understand how some things might have come to be that would otherwise have taken a very, very long time to form. Um, I know creation made a big deal of, like recently, they found water further down in the Earth's surface than it was ever known to exist before, um, which adds more credibility to the, the waters coming up from underneath. Uh, you know, as well as we, we, we sing the songs about the rains coming down, but there was also water coming up, and that's very important. Mm. Is it, it's also, would it be safe to say that we don't always have to have the answer? Yeah. Um, being gracious and, and having humility goes a long way. What are we to say to those who challenge us in our belief of a man is to love a woman and a woman is to love a man? Mm. I'm going to be really annoying and say that will depend a lot on where the person you're talking to is coming from. Yeah. Um, how exactly might be the best way to tackle that question? Um, yeah, often if someone is is not a believer, then just you know pointing to the Bible and having it, you know, saying that's what it says. <laughs> it's not going to be very, um, you know, that appeal to authority is not going to have any uh, sway on them because they don't understand the Bible as having authority over them. So, so what was the exact wording again, sorry? Uh, how, how do we answer people who challenge us on that belief in right. marriage? But there's also a question about homosexuality. Does God love homosexuals and, and people who, who a man would love a man and a woman love a woman? Mm. Um, I think uh, a very key text, particularly on that latter part that you were saying, that informs my understanding of the sexual ethic we should have as Christians is from John chapter 8, where the woman caught in adultery is dragged before Jesus and you know thrown on the ground before them. And, and the, the Pharisees, they say, this woman was caught in adultery and their purpose was they knew, you know, people liked Jesus. They knew that he had a reputation for being gracious and forgiving. But they also knew that the law said that a, a person caught in adultery has to be put to death. And so they sort of wanted to trap him by either alienating the crowd by saying she had to be put to death or by um, showing that he was against the law, by which, you know, which means they could punish him. And so quite famously... Jesus gets down in the dirt and he writes something. Uh, would have been helpful if John had recorded what he'd written, but he chose not to. Um, but having done that and having sort of taken some of the heat out of the moment, he gets up and he says, he who is without sin can throw the first stone. And one by one, they all walk away. Now what we can forget, of course is that there was one there who was without sin and who could have cast the first stone. And he bends down next to her and he says, where are those who condemn you? And they're gone. He says, neither do I condemn you. 
And then, and this last verse is important, now go and sin no more or go and leave your life of sin. Mm. I think that passage holds intention the things we want to remember about our, our sexual ethic as Christians in that um, God does love sinners and want them to repent and he offers forgiveness uh, regardless of the different type of sin to whoever would receive it. But he doesn't say that sin is not sin. Um, and he, he encourages people who, have, you know, who want to receive that forgiveness and who have received that forgiveness to leave the sin behind them. So I would, you know, John chapter 8 is a good place to take people if they want to talk about what we believe um, to show that the Christian perspective is not that we hate mm. LGBT people but that we, we believe God's word that, and I think this is where it could be worth having the conversation about the way that we are made and that men and women are made with a compatibility for each other that women and women and men and men do not have. Now, yes, there are ways that people can, uh, you know, can give sexual expression to any kind of relationship, uh, whatever the um, pairing might be. But when, when we bring the question to, is there a way that we're designed? Is there, you know, is, if God has made us for a certain type of relationship, does he have the right as our creator to say what is good for us and what is bad for us? And does he have the knowledge to know what, might seem good and fun for a while, but which will be bad for us. Um, and there's a way that it seems right to a man, but it ends in disaster. Mm. And, and I think that would be... When I, when I was having this conversation, I would be really wanting to get across that this has nothing to do with my hatred or disgust or you know my personal feelings at all about... Um, homosexuality, you know, LGBT matters, and more getting across that this, this is my ethic, this is what I live with, and this is what even might curtail some of the things that I would want to do because I trust the one who made me and, and I trust that if he says that this is best for you and this will hurt you, then that is right. Um... They might not agree with all of that, but they at least know where you're coming from and that it's coming from a place of, of love for people but also a trust in God's word, the same as Jesus had that love for people but that commitment to sin is still sin. Hmm. I think in our society, our culture, and especially with the media, apparently all Christians hate people who have a same-sex relationship. Mm. But we know it's not the case. And that challenge for us to remain to the, the simplicity of God's love, of Jesus' love, love one another. Yeah. And I would challenge you as well that um, if you're more offended by a same-sex relationship than you are by a um, you know, heterosexual relationship between people that aren't married, then that might be showing something about the attitude of your heart as well. 
that might be something to repent of. Not that, you know, not that we shouldn't consider these things sin, but that they're both the same in God's eyes. So, um, yeah, good thing for us to make sure that we're not actually being homophobic as well in our in these discussions. Now we're just about up for time. I've got two more questions. Do you think we push them through? Oh, uh, should we throw it to the floor? What do we reckon? Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Keep going. All right. All right. Big word. Climate change. Or Ooh, as someone mentioned to me. Big word. Climate evolution. Okay. Yep. Uh, is God displeased at our treatment of the world in making larger natural disasters? How do you float the ideas with someone who's an atheist, who's a non-believer, um, on the concept of climate change and where God has this world? <laughs> wow. I happen to know from being on Facebook that we have a few different views about the very existence of climate change in, that, in this room. Um, it's a big topic, climate change, and I'll do my best to address it in just a few minutes. I think the idea that the world might be suffering the consequences of people acting in greed mm. and sinfulness seems very consistent with the message of the Bible. Um, the whole earth groaning uh, in, you know, because of the corruption of sin. And we do also know, of course, that when, when Jesus spoke about the signs of the end, he spoke about you know, an increase in wars and things like that, but also in natural disasters and, and things along those lines. Now, I can't remember if this was quite a part of the question or not, but one thing I do like to always be very, very firm on is that a natural disaster happening somewhere does not mean that the people of that area are more sinful than anyone else. I think the Bible makes that very clear. There's a point where like, there was this tower, the Tower of Siloam that had fallen over and killed some people in the process. And I can't remember if it was his disciples or, or like someone else that came along and asked, you know, who sinned for that to have happened? And Jesus said, they were no different than anybody else. Um, it's not because they sinned that that happened. It happened because of sin in the big picture, a.k.a. we live in a world that has been broken by sin. And so sometimes these things will happen. And that's not necessarily, you know, the floods in the eastern states do not mean that the eastern states are any worse than we are or, you know, all of these sorts of things. We might have our own opinions about these things, but <laughs> biblically speaking. Um, so when it comes to climate change, I would say I think that there is something... Uh, we, we read in the earliest days of, of Genesis that men and, a man and woman were made to care for God's creation, to be stewards over it. And, you know, to be a steward is to, to maintain and uphold and protect something. And although that relationship has been changed with the land, has been changed somewhat through the curses of sin... We still see, uh, you know, through all of the Old Testament period, in Israel, you couldn't buy land from somebody. 
you could lease them, lease the land for a certain amount of time and then you had to give it back. And the purpose of that was to remind them that it was not their land, it was God's land. And so I think there is an aspect today in which I think being a good steward of the land that God has given us is valuable and is important and can be an act of worship to the God who created our world uh, rather than being an act of worship to nature itself uh, where we want to be good stewards. But I would also say on the flip side that our hope is not necessarily in being able to undo all the brokenness in our world. Uh, you know, our hope ultimately is that God will make all things new. So do good things, care about the environment, sort out your recycling and your soft plastics and, um, you know, buy an electric car if you want to, but don't do it because, you know, that's become your God of, you know, you're going to save the world, but out of reverence for God who created this world. Um, does that does that make sense? That difference in attitude, yeah. Final question: Why do bad things happen to good people? Mm. <laughs> How long have we got? Yes, um, that's a very difficult question, but it's also been something that the Bible has witnessed to fairly universally from the beginning. We. I think a lot of us would like to believe in a process of simple retribution whereby you know, if you're good, good things happen to you. If you're bad, bad things happen to you. Now, it's interesting, the book of Proverbs picks up on, on a lot of things and it says, like, you know, if you're industrious and you work hard, then, you know, you'll get good rewards. And things. There are still general principles by which that will happen, but there's also the underlying reality that we're in a broken world and sometimes you'll work as hard as you can and your crops will fail. And Sometimes you'll, you know, do everything right and, you know, be going to church and, and loving God and all of these things and then a child will die or something terrible will happen. The Bible's never shied away from the fact that this broken world, a uh, world broken by sin, is not a fair place. Now, why? I guess the, the follow-up question then is, why does God allow that unfairness? Um, I think part of the answer is that if we are going to heaven, if we believe in him, he's got ample time to make it up to us afterwards. Our momentary troubles are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us as the Bible says. So it does ask us to trust in him when, when life is hard and when life is unfair. And the other thing I would say is that I think, you know, God doesn't stop all of the consequences of sin from affecting us in this world because then we would be living under the illusion that there was nothing wrong with the world and we had no need of God. But... That doesn't mean that God is uncaring in what he allows to happen. And I believe what Paul says in Romans, that God will use everything, even the terrible things, for the good of those who love him. Um, Stephen, the first man killed uh, you know, for his faith in Jesus, 
that was a terrible thing, you know, for Stephen and for all of his friends. And the result of that persecution was that people fled out of the city of Jerusalem. And then whatever city they went to, they started sharing the good news of Jesus. And people who would not otherwise have heard that and have been in heaven would, um, you know, heard the good news. And so there's hundreds potentially in heaven because of Stephen being stoned to death. And I think if we were able to ask Stephen in heaven, I think he'd probably be all right with that. Um, it does... I don't want to be flippant about suffering, though. And one thing I'd encourage you is, if you've ever read the Psalms, so much of the Psalms are people getting angry at God for, you know, why is life going wrong? And God invites you to be very honest with him in the things that you're suffering and in the things that you're going through. And it's not always easy to trust him in the midst of hard times. But I think good things do come when we're able to continue to trust. We're able to hold on and he's able to work through that to make us, you know, to grow us into the likeness of Christ with my own wrestles with anxiety and other things and, and that really bad patch I went through I think has made me a more uh, compassionate person and a more, you know, yeah, more able to share in and encourage people in, in issues that they're going through. So it wasn't fun. It never is fun. But I, I always want to keep coming back to that. God is going to use it for good, whether it's for my good or whether it's for somebody else's good. It's going to use it for good. And then there's going to be a day when there isn't any more pain and suffering to worry about. <clears throat> Thank you, Daniel. We do have other questions, but I think we definitely need a Q&A part two. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for your wisdom, your gracious words, uh, and just that gentle approach to some very hard topics that we get faced with within our families, within our friends, within our culture and society that we, we need to just not be armed with but take on board to be able to approach those. So thank you. Mm. Thank you. Oh.